college football fans would probably all agree that this weekend is probably one of the most exciting times in that particular sport, uh, primarily because it's what they call college football rivalry weekend. And so as a result of that, the scheduling has matched up long-standing college rivalries, such as Ohio State and Michigan and Alabama and Auburn, Clemson and South Carolina, Wake Forest and Duke. And I believe one of the most exciting games that we had the opportunity to watch, if you saw it Friday night, was that between the University of North Carolina and NC State. Double overtimes, down to one field goal, and, of course, State won. Sorry, Carolina brothers and sisters. But after the game, I had to call my dad. I've told you before, my dad is a retired North Carolina farmer, and all North Carolina farmers, I understand, feel some loyalty to North Carolina State University because of it's being an agricultural school. And so dad oftentimes speaks as he watches North Carolina State sports. He often talks about the teams, whether it's football or basketball, he'll call them his boys. So I couldn't wait when the game was finally over and saw that State won. I got on the phone and said, Dad, how did you like the game? And he said, well, my boys had me worried for a while, but they sure did pull it out at the end. And then he said, mind you, this is a 96-year-old man sitting up there watching college football sports, but he loves it. But he says, I'm so glad that I hung in there to see the last of that game. I guess he was maybe tempted to switch over his nerves was getting on him or something like that. You know, today's message marks the conclusion of a series in the Gospel of Luke that, according to my notes, I started back November the 11th, 2018. <laughs> Talk about the tortoise and the hare. Finally, after four years, a, pre a presidential changeover in the White House one pandemic and our call on the new pastor, we have finally arrived to that last message. I remember the Sunday, I believe we called Pastor Scott, Brother JJ came to me and said, well, do you think you'll get to finish Luke? Well, brother, here it is. Thanks to the cooperation and participation of our pastors helping me to finally reach the finish line. And I'm so glad that I was able to get to this point. And so on one hand, the message today represents the completion and the culmination of our Lord Jesus's earthly ministry. But simultaneously, it also represents the inauguration or the beginning of the age of his church. A significant time in the life of the church, the life of the world. And so the church would be entrusted with the responsibility of reaching the world with the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, reaching those who are lost and unsaved. And so we pick up in chapter 24 in verse 36. And uh, let me just do a quick little recap. Last Sunday when Pastor Scott was preaching in the same chapter, but earlier verses, he was talking about, you may recall, this is where Jesus encountered the two disillusioned disciples on their way back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, the small village of Emmaus. 
And of course, Jesus, unbeknownst to them, because he's 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 shielded his identity, they don't recognize him. And so he's walking along and talking with them, and and and, and they are describing to to, the, to Jesus how disillusioned they are, disappointed because they thought that this Jesus Nazareth who was crucified was supposed to be the redeemer of Israel. And of course, Jesus in those verses there teaches them from the word of God. He begins to teach them about how he indeed Christ was the Messiah and that he came to die. It was necessary for him to come and to die. And so they, and then as they were finishing up and, and they decided to, to stop and stay overnight and they invited Jesus to come in and have dinner. And, and, and that's where, as Pastor Scott alluded to in the Lord's Supper, when Jesus was breaking the bread, their eyes were open. They recognized this was Jesus. And what happened? Abruptly, suddenly, Jesus was just disappeared, taken from their, their, their very presence. And so they go back to Jerusalem. They didn't stay overnight in the mass. They went right back to Jerusalem where they found the other disciples. And they were telling them about what they had experienced and they'd seen the risen Savior. And so they're all in this room. These two Emmaus disciples and the, the 11 that were there. And there's a buzz of conversation, excitement, enthusiasm as they're talking about what they had all each individually or as a group had experienced. And then in verse 36, it says, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. So there are all the, the, well, when we say the 11, that's like a technical term referring to Jesus's apostles. We know in John chapter 20, verse 24, that, that actually Thomas was not there. And that at that moment, he would come later and, and, and see the Lord Jesus. But this group, and there's Jesus. And look at the disciples' fearful reaction in verse 37. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had, had, had seen a spirit or ghost. You know, they were startled. Not, not so much by, by Jesus' bodily appearance, it's not, not like when Jesus was transfigured on, on the mountain and his body began to radiate with the glory, the Shekinah glory that was his. It's not that they were startled by his appearance being so different because we know that, that he appeared to Mary there in the garden. And when he opened her eyes to be able to see him, he wasn't radically different, startled and different. He was, she recognized him. It wasn't the change of his body. It was the fact that he suddenly was there. I don't know if you've been in a room or in a place thinking that you were the only one there. And all of a sudden, somebody right behind you says, hey, what are you doing? I don't know about you. That rattles your nerves. You can make you jump out of your skin almost. You, you have no idea they're there. And then suddenly there's that voice. Or they're there. They're right there. Maybe they were behind a door or behind a, a piece of furniture. Imagine the shock and the reaction as, they, as they're talking about Jesus and then presto, there he is. 
It doesn't say that Jesus was off in a far corner of a room. It doesn't say that Jesus was off sitting in a chair. It says he was right there in the midst of them and said, peace to you. They were frightened. So much so that they thought maybe they had seen a ghost. This is not the first encounter with like this that the disciples ahead with fear and shock because in Mark chapter six, you may recall when they were out on the Sea of Galilee and they were fighting the storm out there thinking that they were going to sink and Jesus was back on the land and he walked across the waves out there to his disciples to, to comfort them. And they looked and they saw this figure walking on the waves and what did they say? Yikes, it's a ghost. So this is kind of like deja vu. But suddenly... Jesus is there with them. And look at verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So you see Jesus' calm and reassurance here when he first of all greets them, like, peace, peace be with you. It's okay. It's all right. But realizing that they are fearful because they're thinking that he might be a ghost, after he gives them a, a mild rebuke there, they're like, you know, why, why are you troubled? Why, why, do you, why do doubts arise in your heart but you'll notice he doesn't harp on that. He doesn't continue chastising them like, oh, you have little faith. What's the matter with you guys? Didn't you, didn't I tell? No, he simply pointed out to them there was really no basis for their fear and their doubt. But Jesus goes on after this, this mild rebuke, if you will, and he, he begins to allow them to, to uh, inspect his, his resurrected body. He wants them to, to see. And so the Lord utilizes their senses to confirm the reality of his actual existence when he's telling them, go ahead. Go ahead, look with your eyes. See with your own eyes. Handle, hold my hand. You know, touch, feel and touch and see that, that it's me. I'm not a ghost. Ghosts don't have bones and flesh. It's It's me. And then I thought it was interesting because after that, in verse 41, he says, but while they still did not believe for joy and uh, for joy and marvel, he said to them, have you any food here? Now, you'll notice the, the nature of their fear is beginning to transition because at first it was shock and, and absolute you know, fear. Now the fear that they have is like, this is this is too good to be true. Can, can this really be happening? And joy begins to fill their hearts and they're thinking, wait a minute, it is true. The stories we've heard about Jesus being resurrected, he's standing right here. We're looking at his hands. And I thought it was interesting because in John's rendition of this account, Jesus makes references to the nail scars and, and even the, the place in his side. So they weren't just looking at his hands. They were looking at his hands that still possessed the scars from the nails that were driven through his hands. They were looking at his feet. They could see where the nail prints were still there. 
And if he raised his rope, they would see there was a place that the spear, it was really him. But then when he asked him, have you any food here? Remember now, dispelling any doubts in their minds. Not that Jesus was, didn't say that he was hungry or famished or whatever. He just said, by the way, do you have any food? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, you know, we've been to the seafood restaurant. Now, we, we, we asked, they had some pieces of broiled fish and some honeycomb. Some manuscripts don't mention the honeycomb, but the fish. And, and, and Jesus began to eat it. Because he wanted to prove to them he was not a phantom. He was not a spirit. He was not a ghost. You can't touch a ghost. You can't feel a ghost. You can't, you know, you, a ghost can't eat. They can't consume food. So the Lord has taken great measures here to not only calm his disciples, but to reassure them that this is not some vision that they're having, but they're actually standing in the presence of the resurrected Son of God, just as he had told them it would occur. But then you, as we look further in verse 44, you'll see the Lord patiently begins to enlighten his disciples. Remember in, in, in Pastor Scott's message in, in Luke, Luke 24, in verses 25 through 27, the Lord was was demonstrating to the to two dismayed disciples and disillusioned disciples. He was, he was demonstrating to them from the word of God how that Christ should suffer, that he would be raised. And, and so, and I like that point that Pastor Scott had in his message. You know, the key to understanding the gospel is Christ. The same thing for us. When we're studying the word of God and, and pouring over the scriptures and seeking to understand the scriptures, it's important that we invite him into the process. Who knows the word of God better than the one who inspired it? Look in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, that's an expression for all the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying these are the things that must be filled that have been written in all the scriptures, all the scriptures from the beginning with the, the law to the writings. All of it points to Christ. And so Jesus begins to, to teach them very much like he did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I wonder if those two guys are sitting there thinking, oh, we've heard that one. We, we've gone through this lesson. I believe they're soaking it in for the second time. So that's right. As Jesus is teaching, they've been they've already been exposed to this and they're probably, you know, amen. And as he's going along, that's right. That's what he told us. This is exactly. Now listen, Peter, listen to what he's going to say. And the scriptures verify the identity of of who Jesus truly is. And so Jesus is, as we see in verse 45, it says, and he opened their understanding. Just like those two Emmaus disciples after Jesus had broken bread and, and, and that supper there in verse 30. In verse 31, it says, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. That's the part that our Lord plays is his 
opening our spiritual eyes to be able to see the, the truth. And as Jesus is taking them back through the scriptures and pointing out different teachings and prophecies that point to Christ and reminding them of the things that he had already taught them, he begins to open their understanding that they might understand and comprehend the scriptures. And in verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and the thir- on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So just think about it. The message of the gospel must be founded firm in the inerrant and infallible God-inspired word of God. So when we are talking about the, the gospel, it must be based upon the scriptures, not upon therapeutic measures. We talked about the danger of a therapeutic gospel. The gospel must be based on the word of God. And here is Jesus Christ, the very one who has in divinely inspired the word of God, given the word of God, using the word of God now to open their understanding to the biblical basis of the gospel. Who better than the very one who inspired the word to expound upon the word of God? And it's important for us as Christians, it's vitally important for us as a church today to understand that the sole basis of the gospel message has to be the word of God. It has to be the word of God. Friend, I don't care what kind of uh, a method that you use or a program that you use in sharing the gospel, but it has to be based on and incorporate the authoritative, divinely inspired word of God. Your elders and I, your elders and I realize that it is our responsibility to equip you. If you're going to be effectively, actively engaged in, in the Lord's great commission and sharing the gospel, then it's our part. It's our responsibility to make sure that we have thoroughly grounded you in the word of God so that you share the gospel as it's based upon the teachings of the scriptures and you can share it with confidence. And our failing to do so as elders would result in you failing as a witness. And so Jesus enlightens them concerning the biblical basis of his gospel But then I want you to see how he enlightens them about the global scope of his gospel. The global scope of his gospel. Look there again in verse 47, how he talked about and repentance and remission of sins shall be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. You know, Luke's great commission is a briefer version He just said, starting at Jerusalem, beginning at Jerusalem, to all the nations. We are accustomed to going to Matthew chapter 28 for the Great Commission, where there in verse 18, it says, Jesus told his disciples there on that mountainside, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Jesus made it very clear that the message of the gospel was not reserved for one nationality or ethnic group. It was not just for the Jews. It was for all the nations. I like how that's reflected even in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. One of my favorite Psalms related to relating to the, the gospel is Psalm 67. Listen, as the psalmist writes in beginning in verse one, Psalm 67, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples, plural, praise you, O God. Let all the peoples, plural, praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The gospel, the glorious good news is for all peoples, all tribes, all races, all nationalities, every language. It's for all people. The scope of the gospel is worldwide. I got a glimpse of that when on one of our Kenya missions trips years ago. We had been witnessing in this rural, very remote area, thatch roof houses, huts or whatever for the, for the wheat. We've been going door to door, village to village, sharing the gospel, getting to know the people. And finally that Sunday, we were having the worship service in that little crudely built mud wall, tin roof church, dirt floor. And they had asked me to preach. And and, uh, one of the pastor's wives, a dear sweet spirited lady, uh, volunteered to be my, my interpreter. And so I'll never forget standing up there in that crudely made pulpit and preaching. And you know, I preached, I preached the gospel. That was the text, the gospel. I, I preached Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, not one. Romans 3.23, for all of sin it comes short of the glory of God. And Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I preached Romans 10.13, which says, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes upon him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I went on, and, and I could just feel the spirit was just lifting me up. And I was sharing personally from my heart to say, this is what the gospel has meant to me. It has made me a new person. It has changed me radically from the inside out. I am now a new creation in Christ. And I glanced over, and I was out of the corner of my eye at my interpreter. Bless her heart. She's trying to keep up with me and she's, she's interpreting to the best of I mean, with all of her heart, but it's this face is beaming with this beautiful smile as she's interpreting and the tears are streaming down her cheek. And boy, I tell you, I just knew at that point, boy, the spirit of God was, was, was swinging the word of God and souls were being saved and heaven came down. Because the gospel stands on 
the authority of the word of God and praise God is not limited to just one locale or one ethnicity. The good news of the gospel is for every person and far be it from us that we would hinder the spreading of the gospel to anybody who would be willing to hear. And Jesus is basically given there in Luke's rendition his great commission. And he says, and you are witnesses of these things. You have seen with your own eyes. You have heard with your own ears. You are standing in the presence of the resurrected Messiah, the Son of God, who has completed the task of dying in your place for the penalty of your sins. And you are witnesses of this. But then we see how the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, divinely empowers his disciples. Now that he has he's taught them, informed them, he has he's challenged them with a glorious, uh, great commission, if you will. This mission is, is a mission of such magnitude that it requires power beyond our abilities. And the Lord knew that. These disciples would never be able to pull it off on their own. Look at verse 49. Jesus said, behold, I send the promise. Notice it's capitalized. Promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What's he talking about there? You see, Jesus had previously spoken to his disciples about the promise of the Father. Do you remember in John 14, 16, where Jesus says, and I will pray the Father and he will send another helper. And he will abide with you forever. Jesus is talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. This is nothing brand new. Because even the, Jesus knew that the ancient promises of the prophets like Ezekiel and Joel spoke of the time that God says, there is coming a time I will pour out my spirit on Israel. There is coming a time I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Jesus realized as his disciples are primed and ready to go out to share the glorious good news of the gospel that they would need to be reassured that they would be given the power to do so. And we know, we see evidence of that in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost when Peter, the same Simon Peter that denied Jesus three times, stood before the very murderous Sanhedrin and all the ones who had been responsible for the crucifixion of his Lord. And he stood before them and he quoted right out of Joel about this was the work of the Spirit of God being poured out upon them. Luke would also write later in another text that God would inspire him to write the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, listen in verse 4, talking about the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and its connection to the Great Commission and the spread of the gospel. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, there it is, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority. But listen to what he said. Verse eight, but you shall be, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's the power. Jesus is not only given his disciples a glorious mission, but he's given them unlimited divine power within which to do it. And that same power source is available for Christians in the 21st century. We've not outgrown and become more too sophisticated to rely upon the power of the Spirit of God, have we? With all of our intelligence and all of our inventions and all of our technology, let me tell you something. We, with all of man's resources, he cannot do what the Spirit of God alone can do. And the Lord, just as sure as he calls us, he will empower us to take the gospel. The Lord empowers his disciples with the presence and the promise of his Holy Spirit, but also as we close, he does so with his magnificent and monumental ascension. We don't talk a whole lot about the ascension of Christ. But look with me there in chapter 24, verse 50. After having done all of this, he leads his disciples out as far as Bethany, a, a town familiar to Jesus through Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Forty days have transpired since Jesus' glorious resurrection from the grave. And now he is being raised up, ascended to heaven. His mission is complete. He has duly uh, commissioned his disciples. Now it's interesting, the other gospels are kind of scant in their references to the ascension. I'd love to have been a fly on Peter's shoulder just to witness this. Here the Lord is. And can you imagine? I wish they had recorded the blessing that he blessed his disciples before departing to go to heaven. Wouldn't you have liked to have known what did he say in that beautiful blessing upon his disciples as he was being lifted up? But the other disciples, the other gospels rather, give scant references to Jesus' ascension. ascension. In Mark 16, 19, it simply says that after the Lord had spoken to them, he, he was received up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And in John 20, Verse 17, when Jesus had the encounter with Mary Magdalene and, and, he, and she was clinging to him there in the, in the garden when she first realized it was Christ. Remember what he said to her? He said, no, 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 don't, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended. So referring to that, but going back to Luke's other inspired writing Acts in chapter one, we get a little fuller description as we pick up in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 9 in Acts, 
Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched the disciples, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming again. Just as you watched him go up, one day you'll watch him come down, but it won't be the same. You know, we think about Advent and I, I thought it was just more than coincidental that that the Lord put it on my heart to start the series in the Gospel of Luke just as we were getting ready to launch into Advent season. And as we were looking at the first chapters, the first two chapters, particularly in the, the Gospel of Luke, there's so much excitement. You know, we, the anticipation of Gabriel coming to Zacharias and, and making the announcement of John the Baptist and then Gabriel coming to the Virgin Mary and announcing to her that she was going to give birth. And then, you know, just the excitement was building as Mary was ready to give birth and on her way to Bethlehem. And then the, the encounter with the, the angels, you know, making that grand announcement to the shepherds out in the field, you know, behold, uh, born this day to you in the city of David, it's the Christ, you know, all the excitement was on the coming of the, the, the Messiah, the, the, the Messiah who would be born, the incarnation. But as we close the Gospel of Luke, and as we can visualize through the descriptions that God has given us through Luke's writing of the ascension of Christ going up, Sure, we're excited that Jesus' mission is completed. Sure, we're excited that he's up in heaven at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. But that should generate in our hearts an expectation that indeed he's coming again. So with equal, if not more, excitement, brothers and sisters, can we conclude this gospel with such anticipation and excitement that we would be like John and saying, even so, come now, Lord Jesus. And knowing that our Lord is coming again in power and in glory to dispense God's judgment upon all unrepentant sinners should motivate Christians today to fervently engage in sharing the truth of the gospel with our families, our friends, our acquaintances, before it's eternally too late. Might that be our desire? Christ is coming again. Christ is coming again. Praise the Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to walk through this wonderful gospel We thank you for the lessons that we have learned along the way of what a wonderful, glorious Savior we have, Master and Lord Jesus Christ, God. Lord, we have walked along with your disciples in our minds on those dusty trails as you revealed yourself and you revealed the love of God and the plan of God for redeeming lost sinners.
For we were in awe as we watched you do great miracles, healing people of all kinds of diseases, as you manifested your authority and power over all the natural realm, as you demonstrated the authority that was yours in teaching and preaching. And certainly, Lord, we were right there in our hearts and minds as we watched as your disciples witnessed your arrest, your trial, and your brutal crucifixion. Oh, Lord, God, stir our hearts. We praise you, Lord, and we say hallelujah that we are also there at that tomb on that Easter Sunday in our hearts and minds as we read this account in Luke's gospel when the women went to the tomb and it was empty. It signaled the fact that the Savior had been risen from the dead. So Lord, thank you for loving us enough to give us your holy word and put a desire in our hearts to study your word and to apply your word. And we pray that the lessons we have learned in this wonderful gospel that we'll continue to meditate upon and think about and apply in our lives. And we just want to praise you, Lord, how good and gracious and kind you are. We thank you for being willing to pay the price for our sins on that cross that we might, by your grace, through the faith you've given us, put our trust in you and know that we're saved, our sins are forgiven, and that one day we'll be there in heaven with you forever. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.